You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcast, Episode 7, Nika Mokotasi, Crafted in Paradise. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts. I'm your host, Jodie Muta Hamilton, and I'll be talking to the people behind businesses and brands that make a difference. Each story is unique, but with a common thread of positive change, working towards a sustainable fashion industry, one that values innovation and craftsmanship, where style and ethics go hand in hand. East London may not be everyone's idea of paradise, but it's a matter of how you see things rather than what's in front of you. Nika Mokotasi, founder of Paradise Row, is committed to supporting local craftsmen and creatives whilst highlighting the often forgotten, not so glamorous stories of East London. In this podcast, we hear about Nika's journey, from her education in psychology to realising her creative side needs to be nourished after she created an award-winning mobile banking app for children. We also discuss the gentrification of East London, the benefits and challenges of producing leather accessories in the UK, and how the brand is not only being recognised in fashion circles, but also by arts and culture organisations, as a brand reflects what it means to be British today. Hi Nika, thanks so much for coming down today in South London at my home actually because we've got little Raf with us in here who is six weeks tomorrow. Okay, um, before we get into knowing a bit more about your new brand Paradise Row, could you let us um, have a bit more information about your background and your kind of like upbringing and what brings you to London really? Hi Jodie, thanks very much for having me. Um, Yeah, I'd be more than happy to uh, let you know about my background. Um, so I was born in Manchester. Um, I left there when I was 18 to go to university in Liverpool to study psychology. And then I moved down to London when I was 21. Um, that was eight years ago now. And I studied at Goldsmiths, which is a, a well-known arts university. Um, and they had a brilliant master's course in um, organisational business psychology um and um what what is business psychology what do you actually look at (laughs) so um there's so many elements to it really but um the main aspect is actually it's uh looking inwards into the organization and the behavior of the their staff and so whether they're engaging they're the right fit for the for the job um um looking at their skills and matching to uh, matching them to the certain aspects of the job so it was really improving an organization um rather than on its um kind of getting the right fit for the right jobs and, yes, and a team a whole team but you know that there's, there's with businesses they're always um improving procedures but they don't realize it's actually you know if they have the people in the right places in the right departments and they have um, good leadership and good team building that can affect the business mm-hmm. a lot and I think um, a lot of tech companies are really focusing on that at the moment um, they're they're really involved in getting occupational psychologists um, in to improve their businesses so I do think it's it's going and towards that way I've seen it a lot 
part of the recruitment process as well. So even before you're offered a job, you know, your psychometric testing and all that kind of thing, but even more in depth than that to see if you're the right fit. Um, and it's kind of building a team like a, what's that thing, fantasy football or something, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Com- yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, so do you want to just tell us a bit more about kind of what happened next and, yes. and your change of direction, I guess? Of course. Um, so, yeah, I was, and I still am, always interested in psychology. Um, and at that time, it was 2009, and there wasn't really any space for psychology in business. It's very niche. Um only just now I'm seeing some sort of movement in the industry. So I decided to go into general consulting um, because just the skills I acquired from the masters, you can still apply and try and improve a company. But I went to a, a company called Informa and they advise businesses on based on their MI data, management information data. <laughs> um, and that was fantastic. I loved it. I worked with um, really good um, clients. Um, my main clients were Barclays, HSBC, NatWest, RBS, and we saw how they uh, worked in their online business, um, telephone sales channel, branches, mobile apps, and then gathered their data, benchmarked them against one another, and then went and did workshops and improved their business. And then I went in-house for Santander, and I just thought, for me, it was a good next step because it would be really getting involved with one client but in-house mm. so you can go more in more in depth with one exactly kind of dive into the yeah exactly yeah. and it just turned out to be completely different from what I expected um Santander bought a lot of building societies uh and they were being really aggressive in growing at their bank in the UK because they're the fifth largest at the moment, and I think they want to be part of the big four. And it wasn't a culture of um, creativity at all, because there is an element of creativity in consulting. You, you're you given a wealth of information, and you convert it and to improve and design something new. And they were just not interested. They, It was a project management exercise, basically. Everything was going chaotic and they wanted people in just to manage people um but you know in a way where <laughs> there was culture clashes some stuff That's, you didn't agree with essentially yeah and like yeah uh, witnessing yes exactly <laughs> and had I been an occupational psychologist at Santander that would have been very interesting but I was given a role as a um improving their systems so I didn't actually have that opportunity um and then I I needed I always need an outlet for my creativity and I produced a um a children's app for Santander children's banking app to teach them how to save money and uh it was basically they have this goal of whether they want to buy a robot or a doll or a ball they choose on the app and then they um 
put in there how how much it is and how much they have to save weekly and how many weeks they want to save for and it was just teaching them about saving and went on to win uh, the um, mobile banking app of the year and I loved it and I thought it was so dynamic and I was like what am I doing at Santander it's not as dynamic as I thought it'd be and here's this app and it won an award but they didn't want to implement it because yeah. they've got other <laughs> priorities um and so from from then on it was kind of as a turning point it's like you know if you want to do something interesting and dynamic in your life now is now is the time because I felt like I was at a standstill um and all throughout my career I always uh, loved um I always visioned and loved imagining designing handbags I didn't feel there was anything out there for me and um what made you actually go into kind of not a fashion sense in the first place why didn't you just set off you know from do do a degree in fashion in the first place what was holding you back from that do you know, <laughs> what's funny is that I really did want to when I was younger um I thought it was just a dream I didn't think it was even possible uh, where I was brought up from, there was not really anything. <sighs> well, I don't know now. Manchester may have changed, but back then, uh, there was nothing engaging in terms of fashion. There was no galleries or any sorts of courses or opportunities. I just didn't think it was an option. It was something you'd see in films, TV magazines and I was worlds away from it so it was it was more like a dream than anything accessible or not even you know aspirational it just was completely unachievable it was a fantasy yeah. it was a fantasy yeah. so to the point where I didn't even entertain it because I thought it would be impossible to achieve yeah yeah um and to be honest when I started Paradise Row I didn't even see it as a fashion business I was thinking oh right well I'm creating handbags and it's this cool product and it's based on where I live and and now I'm starting to realize it's it a is, fashion yeah. business it's crazy how I guess because you approached it rather than making clothes, you've gone for accessories and, and that lends itself, you think it's a product. Exactly, so, that's yeah, how so you kind of distance your, the, the vision of fashion and product, I guess. Exactly, I was thinking yeah. in a very business-like yeah. manner and um, and it's taken so many people to me say, oh, you're in fashion now and I'm like, yeah. hang on, wait you're a minute. You're really? fashion designer now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I didn't, yeah. really didn't think about that at yeah. all. It is incredible. Yeah. But yeah, that's how I got to where. Um, and, you know, it's not a conventional way, but. But I mean, the grounding that you have now in business will be, you know, unbelievable for your own business now. So you've seen kind of so many different scales of business. And like you said earlier, what you don't like about things, you can kind of implement in your own your own vision now in a different way. Um for, you know, create a culture in your own business that you're proud of mm, and, and that mm. kind of thing. Yes, what I have noticed is that um, when you're designing something, you can go so overboard. So, you know, you you want it to be, you're, you're per perfectionist and you can spend time and money perfecting this 
that, I mean, I can't even tell you, just like tiniest thing, which no one else is going to notice. And I think if I started in fashion and design, this is how my mind would have worked now. And I wouldn't have been able to launch the business because I keep trying, perfecting the product, perfecting the product and got nowhere. And, and I think that is exactly what a lot of people coming from a fashion background do. And because of that perfection, they actually never manage to launch a brand or they're not happy with it or it doesn't make money because they spend too long or, you know, it's got to be the exact shade of a fabric or the exact kind of material and, and so on. And it becomes not commercially viable and then they lose money and they go bust. So Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I'm thinking from now with this business um, perspective there is a point where I say stop it's not important anymore because this is not going to make a difference in sales if it was th this um, shade of gold or that shade of gold yeah it's hard to let go though isn't it <laughs> and there is a fine yeah. balance <laughs> um, just thinking a little bit now about East London because obviously that's mm -hmm. where you've chose to to live now mm -hmm. and also you know your whole company DNA is based around it um, mm -hmm. can you tell us a bit about your views of East London living there for the past few years and the change and the gentrification and kind of do you think that you're perhaps part of the problem or part of the solution or you know what's your view on that I definitely think I'm both um, I'm um, unfortunately I don't like saying it but I do think I'm the problem I'm from out of East London and I moved there four years ago and I can see a lot of people like myself um, moving from outside of the area into the area who don't know much about East London culture I mean the original East London culture before it became creative and arty um, and unfortunately with gentrification there is an element of um, eradicating the culture and I want to be part of the solution. I want to find ways where, you know, the history and the culture is kept alive. And uh, that's why I'm starting Paradise Row. Why do you think it's actually important that that culture is kept alive? It's a bit of a, a random question, but why, why, why do you feel it's important? I mean, um, so the, the bags are made in East London and... Um, it's made in this little workshop in Dalston and um, the, the staff who work there, they're, they're East End Cockneys who've worked there for 30, 40 years. And one of my bags is um, dedicated to the history of boxing in East London. And I remember um, one of the workers there was, was held up the charm, the boxing glove charm on one of our bags and said, what's this for? And I said, oh, it's about the boxing culture of East London. They're like, really? My brother's best friend um, boxed at York Hall and um, my cousin's a boxer and this is fantastic. And I could see how much it touched them. And, and how proud they were. At the, the, yeah, Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and that's why I think it's really important why I'm doing why it's important important to keep that alive it's it's important for people it's important for me yeah so the so you would say now um your use of the the stories because we're we're in an age now where 
a lot of brands are starting to really pitch the storytelling and it's all mm. about stories to sell products. Mm-hmm. Um, but actually, that's completely part of your brand DNA now. It's not just from a design perspective, but it's it's rooted in the way that you treat your business and kind of you produce locally and, and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So um, how, how do you feel that can you just explain a bit more perhaps about why it is part of your DNA and it's not just a, a marketing gimmick to sell more bags? Hmm. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Um, for me, creating a brand or product that someone's going to buy into, I, for me, it can't just be a product. It has to be some sort of... It has to be educational. You know, I, I don't want to... Um, produce something that's empty Um, when someone buys a paradise row bag not only are they supporting a local trade chain so the um, the workshop the leather wholesaler the designer the photographer the graphic designer um, the charms on the bag and the story cards along with them they 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 are also indirectly supporting and highlighting a cultural institution purely just buying that bag so for example the black bag is called the pearly and it's based on the pearly king and queens um and they're a charity in east london and with them if if a customer buys that bag and they're like oh the pearly what's about and they read the story card about this charity Next time they might donate to the Pearly King and Queen. So you ha- there's this chain effect. So it's not just um, it's not just a marketing gimmick. It's uh, it's I feel it's so much more than that because yeah, you actually genuinely really care about yeah. the people and the brand and and all that mm-hmm. um, within that. So if you if you could describe um, Paradise Row. How would you describe it in three words? This might be a pretty hard one. <laughs> <laughs> I first, first of, I've my first two words without even thinking about it carefully already contradict with. I was going to say classic and modern. How is that? Yeah. How can that be? Um, well, classic. I think what I've done is um, uh, because the brand is rooted in London. And the styles will be are timeless. You know, they're not trend led. Um, they will, you know, a bag that you use now, you can use mm, ten years some later. Definite longevity in the in exactly, the design in the, and the shape. Yeah. Modern because it's a fresh outlook on the classic British bag. So it's it's shaped similar to a satchel bag, but um, the uh, satchel bags usually use um, brass. Um, hardware and I've paired it with pale gold hardware so it kind of freshens up the look so in that way it has uh, modernity to it are they actually um, gold plated your, your yep. yeah okay. yeah they're gold plated um, and then uh, I would say the last one would be edgy because uh, with these stories and which is very much part of Paradise Rose brand. Um, I they're not traditional classic stories of London. Um, they're not glamorous. It's not British Empire type stories. They're really getting into the nitty gritty 
of the this, real London, in a the sense, real yeah. London, the dark London, some people might say. Um, and to bring that forward, I think that's quite edgy to celebrate that. And, you know, um, I love what Mulberry, Burberry, Aspinall of London do, um, but they are very much the, the traditional Layers British of social class, yeah, the kind of focus on. The and I'm, I'm not, I'm not going towards that. So I, I, I envision Paradise Row more like um, acne. You know, it's, it's not seen as a classic brand of Stockholm. It's seen as a very quite Modern, edgy, yeah. forward for thinking yeah. brand, and that's where I align myself with. So we've talked about you, um, you know, kind of highlighting the stories of East London and aligning yourself perhaps with a more modern brand as well. Um, what would be the next natural step then for Paradise Row? Are you going to keep um, keep kind of coming up with the stories from East London and showing them? Or do you think that you perhaps might move to, to West London and highlight the communities and, and the different stories from kind of there or have you not got that far down the line yet it's interesting you say that um so with the first collection the core collection and it will always be there because it was his first and it's important it's highlighting um the area which the bags are made in and um I think it's it's not going to be seasonal and that's there for life and you're going to keep making the bags in the factory that you're using yes, at the minute. Yeah. exactly um I mean, I'll come on to that. That's quite a bit of a struggle, but I'll come yeah. on to that later. But um, uh, with it's it's kind of resonated in the arts and culture industry. I mean, sorry, the arts industry rather than the fashion industry. It's become more of an arts and culture brand. So I've had um, a gallery in Somerset House called Subject Matter. And they've approached me to do a collaboration. So they're like, oh, you know, I feel we've, we feel you're Paradise Row is a good fit with us. Um, we're happy to offer, um, you know, discounts on our prints for Paradise Row customers and also um, vice versa. And I was like, that's so interesting. A gallery from Somerset House and, you know, a handbag business from East London. But it just seems this kind of the brand DNA has set it apart from just a regular fashion bag business. It's become more of an arts arts brand. And what really confirmed it to me as well, um, I've also um, was approached by um, another person who's starting a um, a magazine and more of a newsletter which is going to be a collector's item so it's not the type of magazine that you'd throw away it's you know and um they they're very arty as well and um they approached me to produce leather sleeves for their newsletters um because something to keep and um they just felt paradise row was also aligned to what they see as their brand so it's moving to an arts and culture brand and I really thought about this and I want to keep the brand rooted to East London. That is where it's it's um, born, basically. And I don't want to do any other collection which is localised around London because the brand is East London 
And if I start doing around West London, South London, North London, it's moving away from the brand. Um, I really want this to be an East London fashion business. So, but I will go on this kind of arts and culture brand that it is now. And every collection will have some sort of theme where the first one was about East London culture. The second one could be about psychology, arts. So I will still make sure the collections are educational and people Mm -hmm. are learning from them. Um, But I want the roots, the 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 Paradise Road to remain yeah, East London. It's, it's an East London brand yeah. now and, and kind of the production and everything will remain yeah. there as well. Um, moving on to actually, interestingly, you said the ups and downs of production. <clears throat> so, um, you know, we all know that making anything is mm. pretty difficult um, <laughs> and, you know, it takes time to find suppliers and it mm-hmm. takes time to work with factories and also you've approached yours it's made in London and also your bags and so forth are using vegetable tanning and, and more sort of sustainable ways mm-hmm. of actually producing. So could you just tell us a little bit about the kind of difficulties actually producing sure. in that way rather than in China and, and you know, whatever? It's, it's really difficult because um, there was a huge manufacturing industry in East London, I'd say about 50 years ago, and this is all dwindled over the last few decades because brands have outsourced to other countries like Italy and China and there's only a few remaining um you can't call them um factories they're they really are workshops um and they're they're surviving because a few businesses have made this decision to you know let doesn't matter that the cost is higher maybe it's practical more practical for them to make it in London but I think a few businesses have decided because they're passionate about um, leather accessories being made in the UK where they first started and and um, and I was lucky to come across um, one of these workshops and and it is a struggle because this the majority of skills are unfortunately in Italy and China and um the factories I again factories workshops (laughs) that I work with their their main skill set is really you know standard English satchels and I've tried to you know I come in with designs and they're like "Whoa, whoa 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 we can't do that and you Tends to be using sort of harder leather as well, doesn't it? Not so yes, much softer. Exactly. Because mm. when you actually make um, softer leather bags, the turning and the corners and, and the, the lining, yeah, is really. This difficult. workshop doesn't even want to work with lining. I mean, I had to completely change my design because of them and because I wanted to make it in the area. And it does restrict me in some ways, but in some ways, it makes the brand more niche because people know what they're getting. That, you know, uh, the kind of classical British design with a f- modern twist um, in these set colours and the gold hardware. And there's so much you can actually do with that. You don't need to have hundreds and hundreds of colours that might go out season and so on. Um, so it is a struggle, but I just have such a connection with the workshop now. I see how it impacts every one of their lives, you know, if the 
the workshop is doing well, um, everyone's earning more and so on. And I can't imagine taking my business elsewhere. I mean, um, it would be the dream for Paradise Row to take off on another level and then set up some some sort of academy where um, people are on apprenticeships and they can learn the skills. And because, you know, the people who are working in these workshops are going to retire soon. Yeah. So who who's next? the next generation? Yeah. And they have that prepared in Italy and they have that prepared mm-hmm. in China and they don't have it because we don't yeah we don't value it as much as you know as the italian craftsmen because we don't highlight actually putting the cost to something so um i think it's all about the economics and and what's the value of kind of keeping those skills alive really if we can uh known for making Mm -hmm. amazing leather goods and and Mm -hmm. this brand paradise row can help the area Mm -hmm. and actually get those apprenticeships or whatever going then slowly slowly we'll start to recognize that um the craftsmanship side of things is valuable yeah you know and it does provide economic benefit in the area and and kind of Mm -hmm. keep people and generational keep going um yeah so i think it's definitely something to think about for the future exactly um Um, and you know the, the power is in people's hands if they know that if they buy paradise row bag they're directly helping a community in so many different yeah. ways, um, the local trade chain, the workers in the workshop, um, and the establishments. And if you know that one bag purchase makes that much of a difference, can you imagine if everyone started buying the Paradise Row bag? How much of a difference they can make? Yeah. Um, um, yeah so what I've seen with brands, um, British brands who become global is that from our best possible case scenario, they have some bags made out of the UK, so mainly in Italy. Um, However, they still are doing a proportion of their production in the UK locally where they first originated. And that that is unfortunately what you have to do to cope with the demand Mm, when there's there's no skill set. and it does take a long time to uh, produce a generation well. of yeah. th- uh, these skills because you you know you need an academy of uh, I'd say at least 10, 20 years to actually have the skilled workers and it's going to take time. But if everyone starts to think consciously of where they're buying, this change can happen. Yeah, yeah, I think it has to. I think we have to keep mm. kind of the the heritage within our own heritage and keep that sort of turning over and not lose that because um in terms of skills i mean it's it's a long (laughs) discussion we could go into Mm. but you know it is important that there's history within the area and that it gets passed down generationally um we touched a little bit actually about you saying the sort of the difficulties actually of producing. So we've talked about mm-hmm. the factory, but also um, in terms of the leather and the trim, mm-hmm. and you've said that they're gold-plated and the hardware's not just your standard brass. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about the leather element particularly? Because um, I've had some people talk to me about, you know, is it 
is leather sustainable? Is mm-hmm. it ethical? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd like to just get your viewpoint on that, really. Mm-hmm. Um, how you approach making something in leather? Um, so most leather that you see in shops, um, they're chemically paint sprayed. And this is not very good for the environment, but they do this for it to um, last longer and not to have like a tiny mark here or there. Um, And if you think about the Louis Vuitton tote bag, you can, if you just imagine it, you can imagine it's actually quite plasticky, more than leather, unless it's been really sprayed on. Um, I'm only just, I'm not, uh, (laughs) for those who love the Louis Vuitton tote bag, I'm not to see it, but I just want to give an example of um, what's, the main leather out there compared to vegetable tanned leather. Um, And vegetable tanned leather um, is basically leather, which is an old artisanal method, and it's naturally dyed by trees, branches, leaves, fruits, vegetables. And you can really see this in the leather, the depth of the color going all the way through. Um, And it's not chemically paint sprayed. So it's 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 good for the environment because you're not producing all these bad chemicals and it's going into the air. You're using, you know, Mother Nature's resources to dye leather. Um, so in that way, it's 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 sustainable. Um, in another way, it's quite a long process and it consumes a lot of uh, manpower, basically. Exactly. Time, yeah. So that way, but for me, my pre- preference is vegetable tanned leather um because it goes with the brand um in terms of its colors i want it to stay classic and not um and that's not trend led and you know you can pick up a color um this year and then in the next 10 years and there's something earthy and core about it and so that's my preference how have you found sourcing that though has it been difficult? I source or? it through a leather wholesaler in Dalston, okay. um, around the corner from the workshop. So that's another way of the business contributing um, to the area. Um, so the sourcing hasn't been difficult. It hasn't been difficult, but what I'd say is you're very limited in options. Very, very, very limited. Um, another way around that, if you want to expand your range, you could source um leather from elsewhere and then get the leather wholesaler to deal with the um the the amount of skins and the batches and that's where you're still giving business to the leather wholesaler so yeah it's it's tricky but i these restrictions and these struggles i think make it worth it i think it contributes to the brand it makes you have to be more creative with the boundaries and the restrictions that you're given then, doesn't it? Because, um, you know, there, there are other brands out there that have perhaps use the same factory as you, perhaps use the same um, wholesaler, and mm-hmm. you have to differentiate yourself from them and make it unique. Exactly. Um, and I think sometimes it's good to have those things to work with. Um the boundaries or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the pressures of that. One thing I wanted to say, Jodie, is that, um, I feel that a lot of other brands are not open to the, 
kind of the background of the production. So some people say, okay, right, um, designed in the UK, made in Italy. And some people are like, oh, made in the UK. But they don't say why. And I'm here saying, look, okay, I'm producing them in London, in East London specifically. But it's difficult and it's a struggle. And this is the reason why it's difficult. And so if brands start to... Um, diverse and make some in the UK and some here. This is the reason why. And this is why the cons- consumer behavior needs to change. So if you want, if you're really passionate about things made in the UK and you can't just expect it from the brand, it has to be two way. Yeah. As a consumer, not expect that you're going to have a, a, I don't know, bucket bag in gold with um, jazzy furry bits on or something. Do you know what I mean? That's it's going to be classic and it's going to be the harder yeah. leather and it's going to be more mm-hmm. kind of, yeah. Or you could eventually have that in 20 years time as long as we get the skills. But the way we're going to get the skills of people buying more. Yeah, make the apprenticeships and then you can in, actually. In yeah. the UK. So what I'm saying is don't judge a brand if they don't make it in the UK. Be aware why, why? they don't because yeah. of the struggles and try and um change your behavior and see if that can be a possibility in the future our our, our money has the power to actually change things and Mm -hmm. you know essentially if people if paradise rose and amazing success and people buy loads and loads and then you could put into place the apprenticeship scheme then that has a real difference exactly but um i think if we don't um understand that then there's there's a risk that we won't maybe buy a bag because we know that it's I think it makes a big difference for people mm-hmm. to know why you're producing in the UK rather than like mm-hmm. you said it's just a label so there's yeah. more depth behind that and why it's important that the stories about the people come to the forefront as well um, would you just delve a little bit into the kind of because you were saying even the packaging and things like this how have you approached that because I know that you've used local people for um photography for example mm-hmm. um have you found your packaging from east london or, or how have you approached that because that's actually quite overlooked but a very difficult thing sometimes <laughs> packaging <laughs> um so what i say about paradise row is that the main thing is the bags are made in east london everything else is a bonus um so i try as much as possible to get things locally but if it doesn't happen um well the reasons why we discussed is just that you know there's no availability there um so for the packaging unfortunately um there is no industry for it in east london whatsoever um and what i've said is that well i can't do it locally to east london, but I, maybe i could do it in the uk and the boxes which everyone comments about um and i love them um, so beautiful and they're handmade and they're made in uh, in the UK. Because uh, that can be really expensive. Exactly. <laughs> Packaging is... So it, it is expensive compared to um, making, it, into, making yeah. it in China, for example. Um, however, at least I've, you know, still sticking to it's made in Britain, not necessarily East London. But, you know, this is, a, this is what I was talking about before. As long as I'm honest and open with everyone... And so I'm not saying everything is made in East London, but I'm I'm trying my best to move it that way. <laughs> yeah. Um 
We've talked a little bit about the challenges, so the challenges of using the workshop. Um, could you just tell us a little bit more about the business challenges? So the marketing, the PR, self-funding, mm-hmm. finding funding in general, mm-hmm. finding support, building the website um, and sales and sort of wholesale versus on direct online and, and that kind of thing. So sort of the business element a little bit. Okay, well... <laughs> It, I, I definitely went into it naively and I think that's that is the best way to go into it because if naively even with all your business understanding yeah, cause my, cause, cause, because even though I worked with banks and how to improve their organization and so on I didn't really have a finance background okay. or finance yeah. view um, but you know um, in terms of funding I have a part-time job to just um, uh, give me my own personal income Is that in in um, banking and so forth as well, or what? What do you do part time? Oh right, <laughs> come on, dish the dirt. Oh gosh, <laughs> it's just it. Well, as I said, that I, um, you know, in Santander, I designed this mobile banking app. So for an accountancy firm, I'm designing their websites and their you know the customer journey. So I've kind of gone from that and. Um, it's kind of stuck with that and just because I know it brings income for me Paradise you know Paradise Row is growing as, as a business and I don't want to rely on it for my yeah, and personal sort of income drain it almost as well you want to be exactly able, yeah. I want mm-hmm. to be able to grow it um, so that's and then I'm lucky I'm in a position where I'm, I'm getting married um, I have a <laughs> thank you <laughs> Um, I've got a, a home now and a base, um, and so I don't have to worry about that yeah, aspect of support, life. Yeah. Uh, so I, I do have support, yeah. um, and I'm, you know, some people when setting for a brand, they, I don't know why they don't like to share that, but you, you it's do, important. you do really yeah. need a sense if you don't have the funding for the business, which I don't. You, well, you need to have the other side. You need to have the support. Um, and I do, um, I, and I, I'm lucky to be able to uh, be in a position to start that business. Um, and furthermore, on funding, you know, I'm at this turning point where I'm considering uh, getting a loan, and I think that's brilliant opportunities that are out there. I think uh, Virgin Startup, they, I've heard so many good things about them. It's, from def- uh, different people um i think as well perhaps now that we've discussed about the the culture and the arts and the heritage sort of side there's there's options open for that as well in terms of funding so i think mm. you should definitely look down that route yes. as well yes definitely um, that's a good idea yeah. so yeah that's that's how it is and it does really take a long time for businesses to um make money (laughs) yeah and I I yeah but in terms of the brand I'm I'm really happy of where I where it 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 is standing at the moment after six months six seven months now um it's not very long at all is it really I mean it looks beautiful the website's great everything's just yeah seamless and looks really good you should be really proud of it (laughs) yeah um so could you going into 
you a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, could you tell us, are there any secret corners of East London that you love? Any restaurants? Do you spend time kind of like doing any yoga classes or anything <laughs> that we want to know a little bit more about? So and your and also your personal style and taste and what you'd like to wear and where you'd like to go. <laughs> OK, <laughs> wow, there's a lot. Um, so um, one of the bags is called the Buddha and it's lovely forest green uh, leather with a Buddha charm on uh, on it and that is inspired by the London Buddhist Centre which is the largest uh, Buddhist centre in uh, London in, uh, and it's based in Bethnal Green and it's housed in a former Victoria fire station which ironically burnt down so all these volunteers helped build it back up. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> a fire station that burned down. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> and all these volunteers helped it build it back up and convert it to a Buddhist center. And now it's such a community hub. The, it's based on generosity, not as a business. So all the staff who work there work there voluntary, not on a salary and no income. And and the people and people go there for yoga and meditation. Um, for free or on a donation basis and it's just such a wonderful thing to to see in London because London is you know capital driven and this is this just this beautiful little hub and, and Bethnal Green is offering its services for free and everyone's just there just to support one another um, and that's why I had to um, design a bag on it basically but that that's a place to go in east london for yoga and meditation um so i I definitely recommend that um my other hot spots for east london uh paradise row itself um the quaint cobbled street that the bag brand is named after um it's it's full of period buildings and then at the end, there's all these arches which have been converted to restaurants and bars. And Sager and Wild is their resident, Paradise Garage, uh, the London Cocktail Company. And it's a beautiful place where you can see the mix of, of the history of East London and also the arty people moving in. The two worlds coming yeah, together. Yeah, it's yeah. really, really nice. Um, where else? Um, for families, the Victorian Albert Museum of Childhood is a great place to go. Um, yeah, it's lovely in there. Beautiful yeah. dollhouses, some of them based on real houses in London, which are which is incredible. Um, and then there's some outer parts of um, Bethnal Green. I really like going into Shoreditch. I really like going to Boundary Rooftop for cocktails and also 98 Bar for cocktails. That, that really looks like an Alice in Wonderland type bar. So I'd recommend 98 Bar if you want something different in London. Um, and then you just can't beat a dish room in Shoreditch. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Are you partial to the breakfast set? Oh, I love yeah. it. The sausage non <laughs> breakfast is my favorite. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And I always have a, a lamb biryani and a black doll and... <laughs> Yeah, that's gentrification for yeah. you, isn't it? <laughs> to assume near Brick Lane. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, just a little a bit of a random ending, but is there anything that you're 
looking for for the business so any do you want to partner with anyone if you know almost give a shout out to anyone or (laughs) are you looking for anything at the minute do you need anyone help with website or funding or what's your next requirement for your business to grow um so there's four elements to business there's the business finance side there's the design side there's the marketing side and then there is the supply chain production side so there's four pillars and oh believe me just if you focus on a few the other one slides and you can never have your full focus on all four no. pillars so an extra pair of hands at the moment would be fantastic if anyone wants um gain experience or do okay. an internship that would be brilliant um for me because of my background i've not really had experience in marketing um pr i'm just learning all this uh hence why my podcast is <laughs> It's fantastic and I love it and it's but you know if anyone wants to know about more about Paradise Row and feature it then I'm more than happy to um, start that conversation exactly come and approach me you know it's fantastic everyone's approached me from Instagram so that's at (laughs) paradise.row yeah pretty powerful too yes exactly so um yeah you know this I really believe the brand is a fantastic concept and you know as I discussed before it's uh it's a catalyst for other arts and culture brands to approach me and how we can collaborate so it's a beast that could be so big I can't even imagine and you know any help would be fantastic amazing (laughs) I'm definitely going to talk to you about um kind of apprenticeship scheme side of it because that's something that I've been thinking about for a long time so we'll talk about that and I'll see if I can um, hook you up with some other people great thank you amazing thank you so much for your time today thanks for coming down here (laughs) all right thanks Nika's vision for Paradise Row goes a lot deeper than simply designing a beautiful accessories collection by giving a voice to stories of people and the cultural heritage of East London, supporting local craftsmen and creatives, Nika is contributing directly to the livelihood of people living in East London, both old and new residents, showing there can be unity in gentrification. Nika's vision has created strong foundations for a new British heritage brand. Nika's story also teaches us to nourish our creative side, put it to work and you could be surprised with the results. I hope you're inspired by our latest podcast episode. All links and info will be in the show notes and online at blackneondigital.com. Till our next episode, be sure to join the conversation via Instagram at blackneondigital, Twitter at digitalneon, and subscribe to our podcast feed where you'll be notified of new episodes.